Luke 22, beginning in verse 24, God's word says, A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise the lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was writ- what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Let's pray. O oh Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And would your word work this morning in us? May it exalt your son. May it Cause us to find hope in you and live faithfully to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Max Stiles tells of Joanne, a college student who was ready to make a difference. She'd come to faith when she was in high school through the ministry of Young Life, and then when she was in college, she started serving this ministry, and now she'd gone overseas on a short-term missions trip in Kenya. She was there eager to do what God would do through her on this trip. And while there, an elderly African man, he came and he shared his appreciation for the Americans coming because it was through an American missionary that his parents had come to faith. And that American missionary had even lost a couple of children. And he was expressing his appreciation. But then he said, almost apologetically, today, my young brothers and sisters, I fear for you. Your great strength is now your weakness. Many no longer know how to share as Jesus did with humility like a servant and joanne yes that's yep we should serve like servants that's why i'm here that's why i came to africa check i am here to serve they had a couple more days of teaching they went through the book of philippians and then they sent each of the college students out and they were each put in the home of a kenyan christian family and she went to a home that was a perfect fit the father of the family had a ministry to high school students She loved working with high school students. And as they'd been gathering before this, they'd been hearing of a revival coming among students. And so Joanne was ready to serve. This was going to be a perfect fit. There was one problem, though, and that was her family took literally that they should treat them just like their own family, that these American college students came to serve. And the wife was pregnant in the ninth month. And so they said, hey, why don't you make the meals? Clean the floors. Go buy the groceries. 
by bargaining in the market. Wash the laundry by hand. Make tea twice a day for the guest. And on and on. And at first, Joanne was up. No big deal. I'm here to serve. And yet time went on. And then the father said, you know, we're so close to the pregnancy, I've canceled all the youth events. And Joanne's thoughts started to change. She began to think, I've raised lots of money. I've come a long way. I sure hope we get to do something useful. I'm getting a degree in nursing. Surely there's something significant I could be doing right now. But here I'm a guest in their home, and I'm doing all the work. I'm better than this. Why are they treating me like this? Like I'm just the help. They just want me to be their servant. And then she paused, and she thought back to what the man said when they first came. She thought back to all of what they learned in Philippians, and her mind went to Philippians 2, where Christ said, or said of Christ that he came, took the likeness of man, the form of a servant, to serve. And she realized she was doing something significant. She was there to be a picture of Christ to that community. You know, Keith said a few minutes ago how the storm, the wind has brought in the dust from Africa, and it has clouded our vision. And sometimes in life, we don't need to hear new things. We need to be reminded. We need to have the sky cleared so we can see again the truths that we should be living out. And here is Jesus is giving his last instructions to his disciples. The last things he says before he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, he reminds them of four things he's taught them throughout and four things that we need to be reminded of ourselves. You know, any one of these, if we had talked before the service, I'm sure we all would have agreed, oh yeah, those are true, I agree with that. But like Joanne in the crucible of life, it's a lot harder to say, yes, I'm here to serve, though it's easy to say with our heads. And so Jesus ends his teaching to his disciples before the cross by four things we're going to see in verses 24 through 27 that service is greatness then in verses 28 through 30 rewards come later third verses 31 through 34 strength is actually weakness and lastly verses 35 through 38 persecution is coming but first in verse 24 we see this dispute among the disciples they're arguing which of us is the greatest now, this is actually not a new thing. This is something they have been arguing about throughout the Gospels. Earlier, Luke chapter 9, verse 46, it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And Jesus instructed them at that point. In Matthew 20, we can read of James and John's mother coming to Jesus and saying, hey, would you give my sons the best seats? You know, there was this push to always have the best. Or just before this, in Luke 20, when Jesus had been interacting with the religious leaders, he then warned everyone, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And so this is a recurring theme because it's a recurring issue in us. Each one of us loves to hear things like, Wow, no one else does a professional job as you do. And your yard is the best one in the whole neighborhood. And your children are my best students. I'm so glad when I see that you're the one helping me because no one else does as good a job as you do. Boy, our team would be so lost if you weren't on our team. And we could go on and on because we love to hear that we're the smartest. We're the fastest. We're the prettiest. We're the best. In fact, we're the greatest. 
And yet Jesus says in verse 25, basically, I'm not that impressed. You're just like Gentiles. And they, they look down on the Gentiles. They are like Gentiles. They wouldn't have believed it. It was shocking. What are the Gentiles like? Well, they flaunt their authority. They lord it over people. I'm number one. You're number two. And they like to tell everyone how they are greater and better than them. In fact, they like to be called benefactors. You know, you've probably heard the term benefactors, a benefactor for a school or a charitable organization, someone who does good, who gives good things. And we all like that. We like to be the one who's giving help. We don't like to be the one who's receiving help. And yet the benefactor word here is kind of a little bit of ironic because the term benefactor was used in their society for gods, for heroes, but it was also used for kings who were known to be wicked. And Jesus is basically saying, look, being a benefactor isn't in and of itself good. It has no value. Why do you want it? Why are you wanting that title? And so Jesus goes on in verse 26 and says, this is not how you should rule. And that's an important thing to note. Jesus is not here creating a egalitarian, there's no distinction in my church. He says, this is how you should rule. There will be positions of authority, but you shouldn't act like you're better than others because you have those positions. In fact, he says, those who are the greatest in rank must act as though they are the youngest. Now, in our society, we often dote on the youngest. We almost let the youngest have the center of attention. That's not the way it was in their society. They lived in an age and time when they were to be seen and not heard, when the youngest got the most menial task of service. They were the lowest in society. And that's the point, because when you're the lowest, well, then there's no job that's too low for you. You can do anything, because that's your position. And Jesus goes on and says that they must be like one who becomes a servant. And then he asks this question, well, look, who's greater? And we could change this to our day. Who's greater, the person who's being served at the restaurant or the server? Well, clearly, it's the person being served at the restaurant. They're calling the shots. They're the one in charge. And so Jesus says, but you need to be like the one who serves. And yet this, this force of this is seen greater when we realize this is right after he washed the disciples' feet. What was read earlier for us for John 13, that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, even Judas' feet. And remember, their tables were lower, and they would be reclining at the table, and so their feet would be going behind them. But if your feet are going out behind you, that means your feet are close to someone else's head. And as you're walking around Judean towns in your sandals, probably picked up an odor. And so all the disciples would have recognized what was going on, and yet none of them stopped. And yet Jesus took off his outer garment, and he washed each of their feet. You know, the task of washing the feet of others was so demeaning that Jewish custom said you couldn't even command a slave to do it. It was too low. And yet the Lord of the universe came and washed their feet. And then he applies this to them, what we read earlier, John 13, 14. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And the thing is here in this 
nice air-conditioned room. As we're all sitting, listening, it's easy to go, yes, wonderful, let's serve. And then we'll get in the car and have a fight over which restaurant we're going to go to. Because that's most important. I don't want to go there again. You always get a pick. That's not fair. You know, it's easy in moments where we're all sitting around talking about the Bible. Oh, yeah, service. We love it. That's wonderful. But when the crucible of life comes and actually you're going to get what you want because I have to give up what I want, we go, ooh, I don't know that I like that. Uh, Symphony orchestra conductor was asked, of all the instruments in the symphony, which one's the hardest to play? And he said, second violin. I can find numerous people who want to play first violin, but to find someone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, that is hard to do. Plato is quoted as saying, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? We have this drive in each of us that I want my way. I want to be the one who calls the shots. I want to be known as the greatest. And yet Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, greatness is giving up your rights. It's in serving. And Jesus will have none of that with his disciples. None of the pushing for the top, but only submitting and serving others. It's rather ironic Jesus had just talked to them about how he was going to die for them. And what's their next conversation? Well, that's wonderful, Jesus. But I'm the greatest, just in case y'all didn't know. When Jesus goes, I hope y'all recognize I'm the one who should be calling the shots. They're so focused on themselves, and so are we that we often don't even recognize it. We unconsciously do things that, hey, did everyone notice how long I served today? Oh, did I mention that? Oh, sorry, I just slipped out. Just wanted you to know, just kind of, not really. Sort of, uh, that I'm a great servant. And we constantly are letting everyone know, boy, I'm a really great guy. I hope you know how great I am because I'm pretty good, pretty great. And yet Jesus is saying, you should not be like that. So we have to ask, is our life focused on serving or being served? What is there that right now you would quit doing Except, you know, if I don't do it, no one else will. And so you keep doing it out of love and service for others. Hopefully there's something you can think of. Or maybe this last week, this last month, what can you look back to and go, I specifically chose to do that, even though I didn't want to, because I wanted to serve. I gave up my rights because I want to be like Christ. And if you can look back and you're going, ooh, I don't, I don't know that there's anything. I'm never giving up my rights, and we need to confess that. We need to repent and say, Christ, forgive me and make me like you, that I would want to be one who serves, that uses my life for others rather than myself. But part of the problem is this: in this is that we think, well, look, if I constantly do that, if I'm constantly giving up for others, I'm never going to get rewarded. And yet Jesus then turns to that next Because he is going to show us in verses 28 through 30 that rewards will come. It'll just be later. We see this in verse 28. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Jesus here is basically talking about his whole ministry. The disciples have been with him as they've been hated by religious leaders. As they've had to sleep on the ground as he had no place to lay his head. As they endured attacks from people, false accusations. They were part of this. They had to answer questions. And they have stuck through it. And Jesus promises, you will be rewarded. You will be given 
the ability to sit at my table. You will be made rulers in the kingdom. You know, this is an interesting point here. Jesus is reminding them, I came as a king. I didn't just come to be a moral teacher. I didn't just come to be a philosopher. I came as the king. You know, that's the gospel, the good news that Jesus came as the king to restore his kingdom. And yet he's showing them, yes, I just said all this stuff about suffering, but suffering is not the final word because there's going to be in the kingdom in the future. I'm going to rise again. You will be part of that kingdom. And not only will they be given to eat and drink, but they will be given positions of leadership. They will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Your loyalty through persecution now will bring acceptance through the meal and responsibility through rulership in the future. And this really shows us an amazing truth about God. And that is that God loves to share. You know, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to the cross. Eh, I'm done. I've shared enough, enough time, enough service. After that in the future, it's all about me. Because I, I did that service thing, killed me. So now it's, me, it's mine. No, even after he dies, he says, I'll continue to share. I'll continue to give you rulership in the kingdom. I don't want it just for me. I'll share it with you. And so Jesus here is showing that God loves. He delights to share. And this again shows us that leadership positions of authority are not bad in and of themselves, but how do we use them? How do we relate to others if we have them? And yet the point now is that Jesus is showing that faithfulness will be rewarded. The disciples stuck through the trials, through the tribulations. They'd been there and Jesus had noticed, and he will reward them. And I think this is important to recognize, because while we shouldn't be seeking the applause of men, there's nothing wrong with wanting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We were made to be recognized, and there's nothing wrong with that, but who are you looking, or from whom, I should ask, are you looking that recognition? Are you looking to be recognized by God, or those around you? When are you wanting, are you demanding, right now you'll recognize my place? Or are you saying, God sees, and God will reward, and I will trust him? And sadly, I think, as Americans, we become so focused on our rights. And we're so focused on, what are the results? What are we seeing from this? That we undercut this mentality, this mindset of being servants. And when we are servants, Christ, though, is exalted. To go back to Joanne from the beginning, as she began to realize this is where Christ had me, she continued to serve, and the jobs didn't change, but she did it more cheerfully. And throughout those weeks, there was a Kenyan student who was kind of part of this, and some other Kenyans came to her and were like, why are you hanging out with those Americans? In case you didn't know this, Americans aren't always thought of as the wonderful people that we are. They don't recognize our greatness, but that's another whole sermon. But nonetheless, they were like, why are you hanging out with those Americans. And the Kenyan student said, no, 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 you don't understand. These Americans aren't like the ones you know. There's this American girl. She's come and she's cleaned the floors and she's cooked the meals and she's gone grocery shopping at the market. Bargaining. She's done all this and the Kenyans are like, no way. No, come and see. And their eyes were open. Why would an American come all the way over and do all of this? And it gave Joanne an opportunity to share the gospel. You know, as 
she thought, well, this is what I have to do. I have to live this way. I got to get my rights. I came to do this. She didn't get her opportunity. But when she sought to live like Christ, that opened the door for her. You know, and yet I, I hesitate to share stories like this because then we can sometimes think, ah, okay, new strategy. I'll be a servant. And then I will get lots of opportunities. Well, countless Joannes have lived who have given their life and service and not another human on earth has ever noticed. But the point is, God does. God is noticing every single thing you're doing. Whether anyone on earth ever claps, whether anyone else applauds, God notices. You know, as humans, we love to talk about the goats of life, the greatest of all time. Oh, is it LeBron or is it Michael? Who, oh, the greatest of all time. And then we compare, oh, do they have the most points? Or what about championships? They don't have as many championships. Or, and then we compare all these things. Or who's the greatest conductor of all time? Or the greatest scientist? And we love to compare all these things. And yet Jesus is showing greatness is not how many points you scored, how many championships you have, how many achievements your children have done, and it's not the titles before your name. It's not the possessions you own or the experiences you get to share or enjoy. Greatness is measured in how much you reflect God. You'll be saying in, right before the sermon, O oh God, our help in ages past. And in the third verse it says, Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day you know, almost everything we do in two generations from now no one will even know it we'll have a little tombstone that someone will go who is that maybe a distant relative because they have a strong sense of trying to know their past will come find your tombstone but all that we've done will fly forgotten except what we've done for god Jesus is saying, you will be rewarded. What is greatness is reflecting me, imitating me. And there's a wonderful freeing truth in this. Anybody can do this. You don't have to be rich to imitate God. You don't have to be poor to imitate God. You don't need to be a man. You don't need to be a woman. You don't need to have a certain position in life. You don't need a rank. You don't need power. Every one of us is freed that we can reflect God every single day in what we do. And this is so important to, for us to grasp because as Americans, we all often replace faithfulness and reflecting God with busyness for God. Oh, I'm leading an important life. I go to 28 Bible studies every week. I'm serving at 13 different soup kitchens. I, I'm the chair. I'm on five different committees in the community for service. I'm on all every committee at the church. Look, I am busy for God. I'm doing what's important. And yet you can be in service organizations and not have a servant's heart. You can be at service events and not have a servant's heart. You know, this is one of the reasons why, as a church, we don't do many church-wide evangelistic events. Now, we're not opposed to those. They're not wrong. But, you know, each one of us has been given unique spheres of influence that we can't recreate so why leave those and then create some arbitrary event where I go talk to some stranger? You have each of us in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our relationships was a servant. We'd be so busy, we'd never have time for all this other stuff. 
We don't need to create something. We need to live like Christ has called us to where God has already placed us. You know, so for me, I get to be a witness as my role as a church. I get to be a witness to the neighbors around me, to those we interact with at the soccer complex as we do our schooling. And so, hey, rather than go create a new arbitrary relationship, why don't I dive into the relationships that God has given me? Why don't I be a servant there? You know, it's not the problem, though, is that's not very exciting. I can't check off, I did evangelism this year. I went and passed out 20 tracks. Woo, I was scared before I started, but I did it. I'm an evangelist. What about the 20 people God has put in your life that would be much harder to love and care for? That's where God has placed every one of us. So what is the outreach of Wichita Falls Baptist Church? I don't know. It's countless. We have people training future generations of pilots. We have people who are becoming pilots. We have people who lead others in science. We have people who work on air conditioning units. We have people who are going in homes that I could never get to because God has put us all in unique spheres of influence where we get to be pictures of Christ, that we get to model him. And so we've been clear, given clear marching orders by Christ. So may we go out eager to serve him. Serving not so that we'll feel better, oh, I'm a servant. Not to get results, those may never come, but out of love for Christ. You know, and God promises that though we may, may never feel good about it now, and though we may never see rewards now, he is promising us here that he will bring rewards. So what are the opportunities? What are the gifts that God has given you? And how can you, in this next week, this next month, become more of a servant to those people? But there's a major problem, though, and that is if we go from this, yes, all right, I'm going to do it. This week I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to muscle up. I've really hated this service thing. I know it's part of the message, but I'm going to do it this week. I am going to be a servant. Because when we think I can do it in my own strength, that, in fact, is when I'm the weakest. And Jesus is going to show them next, anytime we think we have strength, then we are weak. Strength is weakness, verses 31 through 34. And we see this because Jesus then turns to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, there's an interesting kind of play in here because in the first verse, verse 31, both of the yous are plural. It's as though Jesus is talking to Simon as a representative that Satan really wants all 11 disciples. But then in 32 and on, it's singular. That he is saying, but in a unique way, as a leader of the group, Satan has wanted you, Peter. When the language here is reminiscent of Job chapter 1 and 2. If you've read Job or you know the story, Job had to ask God for permission to, Satan had to ask God, thank you for permission, to test Job. Was, over this last year, even a little bit before COVID, but more to that, our family has gone on bike rides. We've gone for walks. And as we've gone on these walks and rides, we've discovered where a lot of the menacing loud dogs are. And the first few times you're riding by and, and they come up and almost need some new shorts. You're scared. Ah, what's going on? And yet then the second time and then the third and fourth, you begin to realize, ah, oh, though they're loud and menacing, there's a nice fence. Now, you would be a fool if you went, huh, there's a fence. And then you went over and <laughs> tried to mess with the dog. That'd be stupid. The dog is still menacing. It bark and it, sometimes their bite looks ferocious. So you'd be dumb to go over and antagonize them. 
but it'd also be foolish to go by and at the same time be just as scared because you realize they have boundaries. And the ruler over them is keeping them in those boundaries. You know, that's how we should relate to Satan. We should never think, ha ha, I can mess with Satan. He can't touch me. Satan is ferocious. And yet that ferocity, ferocity is controlled. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he will not be allowed to try to devour anyone unless God lets go of his leash. And so we should have a rightful respect, even a fear of Satan, but know that there is one greater than Satan that we fear. And so we have confidence, though we don't become cocky, though we never mess around with Satan or demonic activity. And yet Satan here, he, he's wanting, he's demanding, let me sift them like wheat, or as one commentator said, that's like saying, let me pick them to pieces. Let me take them apart. You know, Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants nothing more to disfigure the good things that God has put on earth. In this case, in this case the 12 or 11, we should say, disciples. However, Jesus then moves from the group and he talks directly to Peter. And he tells Peter that I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Well, clearly here the idea is total faithlessness because Jesus is going to tell Peter in a moment, you are going to fall. And Jesus isn't saying, look, Peter, I'm praying for you, but it's actually kind of pointless. You're just going to fail anyways. No, Jesus is saying, I'm going to pray for you that your faith won't totally fail like Judas, who never came back. That you'll come back. And when you come back, notice that important thing, when you come back, you'd restore the other brothers as well. But then Peter responds, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, even to prison and death. You know, when it's a nice room, just other disciples, yeah, I can do that. I'm brave. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer that. I'll go with you. And yet when there's prisoners, sorry, when there's guards, when there's soldiers, when there's the fear of arrest and death, it will lead to his betrayal. And Peter's confident boast will lead to a fall. And he needs to recognize that. He needs to realize he is weak and he needs strength. And yet Peter has been a comfort and also a warning to Christians throughout time. In some ways he's a comfort because how many times have we been in similar circumstances where we're confident, oh, that podcast was so invigorating, oh, that conference, it was wonderful, that sermon, oh, that book I just read, I am going to go change the world for Christ. Nothing will stop me. And then we don't even make it through the next day and we stumble in our sins that most easily entangle us. Oh. And yet we see that there's restoration. Jesus says, Peter, when you come back, Jesus is going to welcome Peter back. And yet this is also a warning that we should be aware of the depth of our sinful hearts. You know, we should be extremely cautious if we ever hear ourselves saying things like, well, I would never do that. Oh, I could never fall into that. I, I, I'd never do that. We're warned in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, Peter's confidence in his own strength is his greatest weakness. This is going to be evident in the garden when Jesus says, you need to be praying. And he sleeps. I got this. No problem. You know, Peter is in the midst of a supernatural cosmic struggle. He needs divine help. He doesn't need more self-confidence. 
He doesn't need more self-esteem. And we especially have to hear this because that's what we're told today. Well, you can do it. You have all the resources in you. You got this. And yet when we believe that, we are weak. Our strength is when we admit, I am incapable of doing this. I need the power of Christ in me to do what he has called me to do. And Jesus is showing only in our recognition of inability, only in our weakness, are we strong. And so Jesus tells Peter, look, even before the night's over, three times you're going to deny me. And so again we see Jesus goes forward with full knowledge of what is going to happen. But just think if we'd been there, wouldn't it be so wonderful to hear the words that Peter heard that Jesus said, I am praying for you. And yet Jesus is still praying for every single one of his children. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Or Romans 8.34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding, present tense, interceding for us. You at any time, you can go before God's throne with confidence because Christ is right there interceding for you. He's not far off. He's right there interceding. The Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Sometimes you've been going through something difficult and you get a text, I've been praying for you, and you go, oh, that others are praying for me. That's such a comfort. But there's not just anyone praying for you. The Lord of the universe who came and died for you is interceding for you. And so we can go forth in confidence because we may not be strong, yet we have one who is for us. And yet, we have to realize how much we like to give the impression of being strong. You know, how often am I asked, how are you doing? And, oh, good. How are you doing? Good. If uh, my whole life, all I ever tell people is, how are you doing? Good. Well, I'm not living in my weakness. Now, I don't think we should then turn into the opposite. How are you doing? Blech. Here's how my last week was. We don't need to emotionally confess ourselves and vomit our emotional life on everyone. And yet, I hope, I pray that for each one of us, there are brothers and sisters that we're honest and we go, I'm not good. I'm really struggling with my boss. I'm really struggling with my spouse. I'm really struggling with my children. I'm really struggling with my parents. I've heard some parents aren't perfect. But all of us have weaknesses. I'm not a perfect parent. I need help. And so we need to be honest because it's when we're honest that when the power of Christ is in us. And the disciples need to know this, and we need to know this, because the last thing, verses 35 through 38, persecution is coming. And Jesus reminds them, look, you've seen God's faithfulness in the past. Remember back, we could look in Luke 10, where Jesus sent them out, and he said, don't take a knapsack, don't take money, don't take anything, you'll provide. And he asked him, did you have everything? And he said, yes, we had everything. They remember God's provisions. However, Jesus now says, but now you need to get a money bag. Now you need a knapsack. And then he says, 
you need to sell a cloak and get a sword. Well, why? Because it must be fulfilled that he will be counted with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. In other words, Jesus is saying the situation is about to change. Yes, the crowds loved him, but now it's going to be where the crowds are calling, crucify him. They too must prepare for this change situation. Now the mention of purchasing a sword, I don't think is a literal idea in the sense that every one of us needs to go buy a sword. You know, when they say we have two swords, and Jesus, I almost think kind of like, oh, they still don't get it, says, yes, that's enough. Well, two swords is not enough if 11 guys need to get swords. Two swords is not enough if the idea is, well, what y'all need to do is go fight. Two, they need a lot more than two swords to take on Rome. Even that night when Peter uses a sword, what does Jesus say? Put it away. You're not getting the point. The point is, it's kind of a metaphor. You've got to be ready because persecution's coming. And he's saying, look, there's going to be clear hostility against you. And Paul makes this clear. Our struggle's not against flesh and blood. But yet he still tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit. We must be ready. I think Daryl Box says as well, the disciples are ready for war while Jesus is ready for the cross. Jesus knows war is coming, and so he's ready to die. The disciples are ready to fight. And yet, down even to this last conversation, we are shown over and over how gracious and loving God is. You know, we, we're here, 11 disciples left. Judas has kind of slipped out in the middle of this. And what does Jesus say about them? He doesn't say, well, three years, we get to the end, and what's going to happen? All y'all rejects are going to leave me. So I'll have to get some new disciples after this resurrection. Look again at verse 28. He says, you are those who stayed with me in my trials. Well, why is he focusing on their faithfulness when they're about to be faithless? Because he is gracious. He's the exact opposite of us. We look back on people's history and we remember, well, I remember when you did this and that and this, and so I'm not going to forgive you. And Jesus looks back and goes, oh, y'all stuck with me so far. Now, it's, it's not that he's denying that they're going to betray him, that they're going to be faithless. He just talked about that. It's that he doesn't only look at that. Jesus focuses not only on our faults, but also in our, our successes. It, it is true that our righteousness is never enough. And yet we can so focus on that that we think, well, I'm never going to please God. Nothing's ever going to be satisfying to him. God finds pleasure in his children. However, that doesn't mean we have enough. Because though the disciples don't want to be with Jesus because, ooh, that might hurt us, Jesus is willing to be numbered with the transgressors, even though it'll cost his life. You know, Jesus' other focused mindset should then compel us to go and do likewise. You know, Jesus is not focused on his rights here. He's focused on coming down to serve. You know, if he'd focused on his rights, he would have said, look, one of y'all needs to wash my feet right now. One of y'all needs to do something for me, but he gave those up. And when we give up our rights, we honor God and we imitate him to the world around us. Let me end with this story. Tim Keller tells of this young woman who started coming to his church, but he could never talk to her. She kept darting out at the end of the service. And then finally, one Sunday, he intercepted her and said, hey, what are you doing coming here? And she said, well, I work up in Manhattan and 
Well, I was pretty new on the job, and I made a really big mistake. And I knew once the bosses find out, I'm probably going to be fired. And yet then time went by, and she didn't get fired, and she started looking into what was going on. She realized that the boss over her, he had gone and he had taken blame for the mistake. And it hurt him. He lost a little bit of respect with his bosses, and he wasn't able to have as much influence. And so she went to him, and she said, I don't really understand. I've had lots of bosses when I do something who then took credit for my work. I've never had a boss who took the blame for what I did wrong. And he kind of, eh, well, you know, yeah, yeah, just, I was just doing it, no big deal. And she kind of pushed him and said, well, why, why did you do this? And he finally said, look, maybe not in that tone of voice. I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I've done wrong. He did that on the cross. That is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. And she just stood there dumbfounded. And then finally she said, where do you go to church? And so he encouraged her to go to church. Now again, does that mean every time you serve, that someone's going to come running up, oh, you're so wonderful, and then you share the gospel? No. Probably for the majority of us and the majority of our life, we're going to seek to live like Christ, and we're going to turn around, and no one on earth is watching. And yet Jesus is showing God is watching every single thing. And what a joy it is that we get to reflect Christ to the world, that we get to be a picture, whether others recognize it or not, but God does, and he says, that is greatness. Greatness is when you reflect me to the world around you, and I will reward you for that. So may we go this week seeking to be a reflection of him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so prone to want the applause of men, and we seem to care so little for your recognition. Lord, may we in the thick and the thin, be lights for you. Lord, we can't do it. That's why we come to you in prayer. We need you to do this. It is not our natural desire. It is not in us. And so would you come through the power of your resurrected son and give us joy in you so that we might go out and be salt and light, that we might be a visible representation of you here in Wichita Falls. In your son's name we pray. Amen.